You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. You know, I told Caleb uh, as that little thing was playing and as we were getting ready to come up here, I said, uh, you know, there's a scripture. You know, Caleb grew up here and uh, was here, I guess, through high school kind of yep. and kind of grew up and went away and he's back. And I said, you know, the scripture says a dog always returns to its vomit. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> now that makes him the dog and us the vomit. I'm exactly. not really sure. But it's great to have Caleb. Also, I, I need to speak to you. Can I have a conversation with the senior pastor for just a moment? Please. Why don't you buy your wife some new pants? Her jeans are shrinking up or, or she's continuing to grow. Listen and, here. That woman knows more about how to dress than both of us on a good day. Well, so, <laughs> hey, that's, that's not saying a whole lot, that's, is it? That's not, uh, that's not a complaint you need to issue to your senior pastor. You can issue that to... Mrs. Bledsoe. I guess that's the style, is it not? It is. Okay. Well, you know, like uh, Garth Brooks' song, uh, Blame It on My Roots, I Showed Up in Boots. You know, I put my boots away for about 20 years. I grew up, this is all I ever wore. In West Texas, where I grew up, if you didn't wear boots, you went around with sand in your shoes because you, you just couldn't keep the sand out. And so even in the hippie days, we were wearing cowboy boots out in West Texas when I was a kid growing up. And uh, I just, you know, it's one of those things like you, that old pair of tennis shoes, you put them back on, you wonder, why don't I quit wearing those? Yep. And uh, so uh, I'm not only representing, I'm kind of going back to my roots and, and kind of enjoying it. Also, I love the brim because it blocks those stupid uh, lights it out. Also, it also blocks the lights from your face, which well, means no one can and see Well, and that's a camera. good thing. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Good morning, good morning. And there's nothing like a little bit of daylight saving time to oh. kill the attendants in the first service, right? But I'm sure that they'll show up for the second one. Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be in the second half of the second chapter this you morning. Know, you know what just occurred to me? What did you just occur to I, I had not even thought about this till right now. 15 years ago today, daylight savings time, is when I stumbled into this church. You, yeah. 21 years old, and he quite literally almost stumbled into the yeah. church. This was, be, this was before you had, you had to set your, your clocks forward. You don't have to anymore. All of our phones do it for us, but we forgot to, and we came in. We were invited, and we came in. You were already preaching, and I, I turned to Jessica, and I said, it feels like they've been doing this already for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and then we realized, oh, it's daylight savings. It's daylight They're about an hour in. That's why. Yeah. And it was Sunday morning after Saturday night. But that was a fir- but that was a first service. So we did full full disclosure stay for the full second service. Wow. Yeah. You you know I was a saint even when I wasn't a saint. <laughs> even when he was a saint even before he was a Christian. Oh goodness, it's Woo. getting deep. You know, one of my favorite little tunes is from The Lion King. How many oh, yeah. of you can figure out what tune that is? You can't. You remember the hula song? where Timon and Pumbaa get to singing and the, the, what's the key line in there? You can be a... Big pig too. You could, boy, what is wrong with you people? 
you, you lost an hour of sleep. You can be a big pig too. I wanted to show the video of that, but now that we're streaming, they would have taken us offline because now all the copyright stuff because oh, yeah. you stream, you know, Disney does it. You know, they spoil all our fun. They really do. You know, these big companies spoil all they our really fun. They really do. But the, the message this morning, we just decided to title the message this morning, you can be a big pig too because being a big pig is about being an influencer. And that is really what the book of Nehemiah is about. It is about how to be an influencer. And I love the fact that Nehemiah was just a normal dude. He was an average dude. In fact, he was a servant in Persia, yet he became, God used him as an influencer. I love the story of the two Quakers who were talking about their mules. And one Quaker said to the other one, he said, you know, I cannot get my mule to plow. And the other Quaker said, well, I used to have a mule I had that problem. And he, he asked him, he said, well, then how did you solve it? He said, well, one day when my mule refused to plow, I said to him, thou knowest, O mule, that I am a Quaker, and therefore I cannot strike thee. But if thou dost not plow, I can sell thee to a Baptist. <laughs> now that's motivation. All it took was the proper motivation. And the influencer provides that. I love a lot of the stories out of some of the great influencers and actually great motivators are out of sports history. Casey Jones, a former coach of the Boston Celtics, said, if you think you're leading and you look over your shoulder and no one is following, you aren't leading. <laughs> now, Nehemiah was a leader without even really taking on that title for himself. He wasn't presuming that he was going to be somebody great, that he was going to be somebody well-known, but because of who he was and because of what he did, Nehemiah became an incredible influence. He took on this humongous task, and that was to rebuild the city wall around ancient Jerusalem, to refortify the city. The wall had been down for almost 150 years, and as far as we know, Nehemiah had no experience as a leader. As I said, he was a slave to the king in Persia. He had no training. He had no leadership. He hadn't been to a, a Maxwell leadership training seminar. He hadn't gone to whoever, who's the big motivational guy nowadays? I don't know. I don't uh, I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember any of those. He'd been, he'd been to none of those kinds of things, but he was gripped with a passion. And that passion so engulfed him that he wanted to be the one that God was going to use really as the final phase of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and specifically the city wall of protection around the city. And that wall had lain in ruins for nearly 150 years. And so in chapter one, we saw that Nehemiah got this passion when the report came back that the city was in bad shape. And then opening up in chapter two, he began, he, he's prayed and, and he gets the king's permission to go. And, and, and right when they get there, he first faces his first obstacle. How many of you have not seen, oh brother, where art thou? You are a really lazy crowd this morning. <laughs> they faced the first obstacle. He had gotten leather, letters of passage. He had gotten the king's permission. He had gotten rights to all of the lumber. But when he arrived in the city, he faced another one of those obstacles, and it was the Jews themselves. 
Because you see, over the course of time, through Zerubbabel returning and then Ezra returning before Nehemiah, there had been groups of Jews who had returned back to the city. But when he got there, he found that the people were lethargic, they were lazy, they were unmotivated, they'd lost their hope, and they'd lost their vision. And what they needed was they needed a leader. They needed someone who would have an influence, someone that would motivate them to bring influence upon them in order to do what God wanted done. Now, before you check out, because I know some of you are right now, you're going, well, I don't need to listen to this one because I'm not a leader. Let me say to you, every single one of us is an influencer in some area of our lives. Every single one of us. Nehemiah wasn't appointed a leader. Nehemiah didn't have a title of a leader. Nehemiah was a servant to the king, but Nehemiah became an influencer. How about this, parents? Are you an influencer at home? You go, well, I'd like to be, but I don't know that I really am. Yeah, you are. How about at work, if you're a supervisor? If you're a little league coach? If you're a Christian in the body of Christ, we're all called to be influencers. We're all called to be changers. And so this morning, we want to give you five lessons out of this second half of the chapter two of Nehemiah about how Nehemiah influenced, how Nehemiah led, and how every single one of us can, wherever God has placed you, wherever he's put you, you can be an influencer. And the first thing that Nehemiah did, and it's it's foundational to it all. He personally committed himself to the task. He got personally involved. You know, there's a, a, a saying out there, or not really a saying, a belief that the greatest ideas come in the middle of the night. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone say that? I remember reading a story about a group of, of computer programmers that uh, were working on a project for months that they believed would revolutionize the world. And there was this one component of the programming they could not figure out. And every time they would try to, to kind of do something different, it would spit out the wrong results. And they were, they were just agonizing over it. And, and I remember reading the story of the one programmer who in the middle of the night woke up and had this idea and rushed up to the office, and by the time uh, the rest of the programmers arrived, he had finished the code for what we now know as the Google search uh, machine, the search engine. And the world engine. went south after that. It went completely south <laughs> after that. Uh, but he got it in the middle of the night. There was a, a recent survey that said that people believe uh, that, that uh, sorry, 40% of people believe their best ideas come at the middle of the night. It was true for Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for three days. He'd been out of Persia and into Jerusalem for three days. Verse 12, it says, Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So there he is. He's in Jerusalem. He gets up in the middle of the night. And what he does is he goes and he begins to survey the wall to see for himself what needs to be done. And he spells out his quest in pretty good detail. The, the, the verses give us a pretty good idea of what all he was doing. Verse 13, it says that he left out of the valley gate, which uh, geographically would have been the western wall of the city. It says in verse 14 that he goes near the fountain gate, near the king's pool, which again, to us in, in modern, our modern reader, we would look at this and have no idea really what this means. But the, the king's pool, for example, many, uh, many people believe is the same pool as the pool of Siloam that Jesus heals um, an individual at in John chapter 9, verse 7. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just a little bit of Old Testament, New Testament perspective here. Now at this point, the rubble of the, the destroyed wall is so thick, it's so bad, um, that Nehemiah has to get off of his beast 
It's probably a horse, but it doesn't say horse. It says a beast. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't ride through it. He had to dismount whatever it was he was riding and actually pull himself through, removing debris and rubble as he goes to get through it. And, and, and he goes through this personally, right? He personally involves himself. And, and the question is, why? Why is he there in the middle of the night doing all this? It's because he himself realizes the value of firsthand information, mm. Right, he's already gotten the report of the wall from his brother Hanani in chapter 1. This is how the whole thing started. His brother comes back from Jerusalem to Persia and tells him the state of things. So he already knows what's going on. But he understands, as influencers do, the value of getting personally involved in whatever it is that God has called you to. In other words, you have to realize that you don't influence from a distance. You get up in the middle of things. You get your hands dirty. You get in the midst of it to see for yourself the state of what is happening. Now, crucially, it doesn't mean that you do whatever, is God, whatever God is calling you to do by yourself, okay? There's a difference here. I'm a firm believer. We are better. We perform better. We accomplish more with a community of believers around us using their unique gifting. Teamwork makes the dream Teamwork work. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> Nehemiah could not have built the wall alone. you got to understand that. It took an entire community in order to rebuild the wall. But understand this. He had to be involved in all of the work, personally. Now, there's a lot of applications that we can make for this. Uh, last week, we talked about parenting a little bit when we were in the book of Ezra. And, uh, and how we give away what we learn, how we give away what we gather from the scripture and what we do from the scripture. Uh, parents are the, the chief caregivers or the, the chief caretakers of the spiritual development in their children. And that begins, parents, by personally involving yourself in the spiritual development of your children. If I were to ask you, how many of you would, would desire your kids to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus? How many of you would, would desire your kids to know the word of God well, to be a light in darkness? I mean, hopefully all of you. <laughs> Again, if you're like, no, <laughs> no, not interested. Not interested in that. Let's talk. Let's talk after service. <laughs> we have a group for that. We have a group for that. But let me ask you, how many of you are personally involved in demonstrating these things to them? How many of you see yourself as the chief caregiver of spiritual development in the life of your child? Or are you just hoping that Sunday school is going to get it done? It's not. If it does, that is the extreme outlier. The, the, the overwhelmingly, what it's going to take is you, the parent, as God intended to get involved on a personal level. And again, I said this last week, I'll say it again, we so overcomplicate this. You don't need a lesson plan. You don't need a special book. You have the most special book there has ever been written in the Bible. You don't need anything else than that. You don't need extra materials. If you're doing all that, that's great. But it's, it's a simple imparting biblical wisdom to everyday life as they are going, as you are going. Now, understand, it may require some changes for yourself. It may mean getting here a little bit earlier to come to a Bible study. It may mean staying here a little later to go to a Bible study during second so service. So he stopped preaching and started meddling now. I did, yeah. yeah. It may mean coming here on Wednesday nights. And bringing your kids to either youth or, or Wednesday night programming and staying for one of our classes. You model it for them. You don't just send them away, but you demonstrate to them what this looks like. You get personally involved. It applies at work as well. If you're in a position of, of leadership, how personally involved are you in the people you have been charged to lead? 
Now, don't be overbearing. You don't micromanage, but don't check out on them either. Be invested. Spend time with them. I spend a lot of time with our staff here. I spend a lot. I'm personally involved with them because I, I understand the value of that. I'm not trying to do their job for them, but I understand that we together make this a better thing. Influencers understand the value of personal involvement. It's the model of Nehemiah. Ultimately, it's the model of Jesus, isn't it? He calls his disciples to himself. He walks with them. He eats with them. He prays with them. He does life with them. Even now, understand this. You, as a Christian in 2022, what did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 20? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end. He's still personally involved. He's still personally involved. Influencers personally commit to the task at hand. Second... He identified himself with the people. And this, this particular point may sound like it's kind of the same thing that Derek just, has just said, but it really isn't. It carries it a step deeper. Because what Nehemiah did after he's inspected the wall, he's gone out there, he's personally gotten himself involved, he's gathered the information, he understands what the challenge is, he understands what the task is. And then the scripture says that Nehemiah gathered the people together, and this is what he said in verse 16 and 17. He said, you see the bad situation that we are in. We're in a tight spot, okay? <laughs> I don't know, I'm just on this old, I watched it again about a month ago, and it just, there's so many classic lines in that, folks. It, it's, a, it's a classic You, you got to go back. And he said, you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and the gates are burned with fire. I mean, he'd just seen that. He just had to go around some of the gates. And then he says, then the challenge comes. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Now, what I want you to notice here is a couple of things in these two verses that he does. First of all, his use of the personal pronoun. He doesn't say you, he says we. Mm. He said, notice what a difficult situation we are in. It's us. It's we. It's not just you. None of this, folks, you know, I know you're in a big mess, but I've come from Persia now, and I've ridden into town on my white horse, and I'm going to be the rescuer, and I'm going to rescue you. No. Nehemiah identifies himself with the situation because he also was a Jew, even though he had never, this was the first time he'd ever been to Jerusalem. He had been born and raised to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes back to the city of David. He sees the mess that that it is in, and he says to the people, we are in a bad situation. This is our mess, and we must face it together. And then he backed it up with actions, as Derek just said. He had personally gone around and physically inspected the wall. He got personally involved. He knew how big the challenge was. And then, as we're going to see in later chapters, Nehemiah actually got on the wall and went to work. And I love what chapter 3 tells us when we get to this, is that as they began the work, they had people around that did not want the wall rebuilt. There were those that were attacking. They were, they were coming to trying to stop the work. And so Nehemiah told the people to do this. This is this, I love this. It's such a picture of spiritual war that we're involved now with. He said, take a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. <laughs> so good. And you get on the wall and we will rebuild this wall. 
The trowel is for the rebuilding and the sword is for the fighting off of the enemies. Get up there. This is our problem. I'm in this with you. Let's get this thing done. And, I, and I, as I look at the key influencers in my life and as I look at the key influencers of history, this is one of the great things that they do. And whether you're a parent and you see that as your primary area of influence, you're an employer, you're a supervisor, you're like a little league coach, whatever it is, one of the things that influencers do is they don't just tell people what to do, they show them what to do, and then they do it with them. Aubrey C. Daniels wrote a book about 25 or 30 years ago titled, that's the last time I read a book, by the way, right. Bringing Out... I used, to, I, I used to know an evangelist that would go into churches and do revivals back in the day when churches were doing revivals. And he would always say that he would go into the pastor's office and, and, and find out what year the pastor died. And they said, what do you mean that? Well, the last time he bought a book. That was the year that he died. They're not with me this morning, dude. I, I died Friday then, if that's the case. Okay, that's, good, good. Uh... You spend a fortune on books right now. I do. At one point... He said that he came to the realization, and it's the, it forms the big idea of this entire book, that most managers who have to influence people, who have to coordinate people, spend 85% of their time telling people what to do or figuring out what to tell them to do <laughs> or deciding what to do because they didn't do what he told them to do. Managers spend 85% of their time. That's bad management. And what he concludes from that is that people are not energized by someone who tells them what to do. They are energized by someone who gets on the wall and shows them what to do. And our Lord Jesus is a classic example. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says, For since he himself, Jesus, was tempted in all things just as we are and he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know, Jesus didn't just say, what you are doing is bad, stop it. <laughs> now that's a, that's a good lot of the preaching that we hear in churches, okay? What you're doing is bad, stop it. No, Jesus got involved. He came, he took upon himself flesh. Think about this, folks. The creator of heaven and earth came and took upon himself human flesh. Why? So that he might experience all things that we do. Now, he had a leg up on us. He wasn't born with a sin nature. So he had the ability to perfectly choose to obey the Father. And Jesus went back and did what the first Adam in the garden refused to do. He perfectly obeyed the Father in the face of temptation. And he comes to us and says, I have been tempted just like you are. Don't ever say, well, yeah, he's God. How does he understand what I'm going through? <laughs> the incarnation of Christ was so that you couldn't say that. That's right. So that I couldn't say that. He didn't just from heaven say, what you're doing is bad, stop it. Amen. He came and he took upon himself human flesh. You know what? I, I wasn't that great a dad, okay? I, and I realized that. My generation, none of us. We were pretty sucky dads. The only thing I did was spend a whole lot of time with my kids. And that always wasn't all the best example, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But one of the things that I love about the millennial generation, and that's probably the only thing I love about the millennial <laughs> generation, no, really, is they spend massive amounts of time with their kids. 
And they, the dads as well as the moms, they really are investing their time and mutual instruction with their kids. And I'm going to tell you, millennials, there are a whole lot of things about your generation that you get a whole lot of flack about, but that is going to be the one that is going to, to reap benefit for generations after generations after generations. And our generation, it was oftentimes we said, just do this. And our kids said, why? Because I told you to do it. And I don't hear the millennials doing that. I watch my own millennial children with my five grandchildren. I watch Derek. I watch, I watch these millennial young people. And, and I love the fact that they don't just tell their kids what to do. They actually get in there, get their hands dirty, and they're actually doing it with their children. And that is going to reap generational mm. benefits. Mm. That's influencing. And that's a parent. That's not somebody that's out there, the president of the United States. We wish he would do a little bit more of that as well, don't you? That's no, that's no big dog that's got a big title. That's just young people nurturing their children and loving their children. And that is going to be the biggest influence those parents will have. Stop telling your kids what to do and get there and show them how to do it with them. And that's what Nehemiah did. He got out on the wall. He took a trowel in one hand. He took a sword in the other, and he said, this is our problem, not your problem. It's our problem, and they got it de- done. Mm, that's good. Number three. And we, uh, we call that in West Texas, getting it did. Getting it did. We're going to talk about that next week, aren't we? <laughs> getting it did. Yeah, we are. Influencers get it did. Number three, he told them the truth. Remember that, that Nehemiah has already gone. He's seen the destruction. He has identified himself with the people. Now he has to, to really tell them the bad news. And James just talked about how he identified him, himself with them while he told them. But look at what he actually says. He says, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may longer, or no longer suffer derision. He doesn't pull any punches either. He not only identifies himself with the people, but he kind of just gives it to them as it is. We're not in good shape. This is bad news. Things are not well in Jerusalem. One of the core convictions of an influencer is that we tell the truth regardless of how bad the circumstances really are. We don't just tell the truth, but we are people of truth. If people in your life, listen, if people in your life can sense from you that regardless of the circumstances, you are going to be honest with them, you've already won influence over their lives. That's just the reality. My conviction is that honesty is such a rarity today that it's not not only not found, but it is desperately searched for. (laughs) People desire honesty. It's one of the compliments that we get a lot around here at City on a Hill, James and I both, is that we always tell the truth. They don't always agree with what we say, but they at least appreciate the honesty. They at least appreciate the fact that they know where we stand. Sometimes it's 10 years later after their life is cratered and they Absolutely. come back and say, man, I wish I'd listened to you 10 years ago. I wish I would have heard you. <laughs> Absolutely. But eventually they come to appreciate the truth. Yes. Here's how I know, and here's how you can know that honesty is something that we greatly desire because of the world's obsession with fact-checking. <laughs> We have several organizations, PolitiFact, FactChecker.org, several other international groups who are, have been tasked with the monumental job of weeding out false information. And you know one of the things about that that's really frustrating is you don't get to debate with the fact checker. I know. Yeah. They win every time. Every time. You don't even get a, a say in <laughs> You don't get a chance to discuss it. Now listen, <laughs> whatever your opinion is about fact checking, uh, and you're going to hear mine, um, <laughs> is... He's got one. I do. Is that, uh, that may may shock you, is that 
they are a great idea in theory. In theory, it is a great idea. There's tons of bad information on the internet, right? You can find a YouTube video or a blog that supports anything you can imagine. When people come to me and are like, hey, uh, I have an issue with what you said, and here's a YouTube video for why it was a problem, I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to watch that. I'm sorry. I'm, if you want to have a sit-down discussion with me, then that's fine, but a YouTube video is not going to do it. You know why? Because I have a YouTube video, literally, on YouTube that says why you're wrong. <laughs> Checkmate, right? It just doesn't work. There's no, so it's nice in theory, but let me give you a truth. This is important. Truth is only as honest as its worldview. Truth is only as honest as its worldview. In other words, the integrity of a person's truth claim is in, in great amount defined by the worldview that that person holds. If your worldview has a very high regard for uh, truth, a high value for objectivity, then you will view information that you receive in this world differently than someone who holds a worldview that has low objectivity, that sees truth as more subjective. They're not going to be as concerned with the high level of clarity or detail in describing something truthfully. This is the central problem with fact-checking. Isn't it true that in our culture right now, and this is one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand, is that we are in a what's called a post-modern culture, and yes. post-modernism says there is no such thing as objective truth. That's correct. That's correct. And so therein lies a big part of the problem here when we come from a perspective of objective truth and the world says there's no such thing. Well, and the, and the issue then with, with fact-checking is that it relies heavily on an individual interpreting information through their own subjective biases, right? So fact-checkers, if just so you are aware, are not computer programs. They're people, right? <laughs> like you and I. And they have their own biases, they have their own worldview, and they are looking at information that is generated by a computer program, and they are governing whether or not something is a fact. So it's not as simple as this is a fact and this is not. It often requires what we in the church call hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. Oh, right? Herman. Old Herman who, right? Yeah, <laughs> hermeneutics, this is the study of interpretation. Herman was neutered. He was. So let me give you an example of how this plays out, just so you can understand. I'm, I'm not... I'm not Digging on... That's how I remembered the word in seminary. Herman neutered? Yeah, Herman yeah. was neutered. Yeah. It was the first time I'd ever heard hermeneutics is when I went to seminary. Absolutely. That's probably the first time many of them have heard it this morning. Um, let me give you an example. There was a, <clears throat> there was a, a particular government leader, and I'm not even going to mention whose name or whether they were local or international, because I don't want you to get caught up in the weeds of, of politics here, because it's really besides the point. There was a particular government leader who was interviewed... And after the interview, a headline began hitting several websites. Uh, we'll, we'll just call him John Doe. John Doe uh, it, it supports... I've never seen anybody try to walk that line yeah. to not be yeah. politically Here offensive. We go. Here we go. Yeah. John Doe supports defunding the police. And so all this outrage begins. And the fact checkers begin looking at it. And they determine untrue, fake news... John Doe never said, he never said he supports defunding the police. So here's what happened. In the interview, what John Doe said was, I support redistributing funds from the police to oh. other organizations to help with law enforcement. Now, in, a, in essence, he's describing what people mean by defunding the police. 
But on one side, you have someone who are not wrong. He did not say, I support defunding the police. Didn't on, use those words. On the other side, you have people going, but that's what he's describing. <laughs> there's, there's more to the story than his words. That's the essence of what he's saying is actually describing this. So this is a worldview problem here. We have a worldview issue. Influencers understand the value of the essence of truth, the core value of truth. They are people of truth. And we find our truth and we're motivated in our truth by the scripture. It's not just the source of truth about God. So understand that. The Bible is not just a book of truths about who God is. It is the guiding principle for how we understand and communicate all truth, anything, all honesty. Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We understand that. We get that. Proverbs 23, 23, he says, buy truth and do not sell it. Mm. Buy it as much as you can and never let it go. If you're going to influence other people, you have to be personally committed to the task. Yes, mm. you have to identify, identify yourself with the people who are joining you in the task. Absolutely. But you have to be known as trustworthy, mm. as a person of truth, to tell the truth. Number four, he issued a confident challenge. You know, as Derek was saying that, I was just thinking, you know, the, the biggest struggle that we have as human beings and being truth tellers and telling the truth is CYA, cover your attitude, mm -hmm. nasty people. Mm. You nasty, nasty people. You thought something that I wasn't even thinking. You see? You see what I just did there? Did you see what I just did there? I made you the problem, and I knew what I was saying when I said it. You see, we, we don't want to really face the issues we don't want to face the issue of why we're upset, so we just say, you know, some other little mundane reason. We don't, ups we don't face the issue of why we're leaving or we're going or we're coming or whatever. And so we go through our entire lives hedging the truth. And because, you know, sometimes the, just, the, just telling the truth is hard. It's yep. hard to tell it and it's hard to hear it. Yep. I, I love what Nehemiah did. He said, we are becoming, we have become a reproach. That's what he said to him in that verse. In fact, Right here, issue at chapter 17, or, or verse 17 and 18. He lays it on the line and he says to them, listen, folks, because the city is in the condition it is, we are a reproach. We have allowed this for 150 years. Now, I'm editorializing at this point, but it's what he meant. We have allowed for 150 years the city of David to be in a mess, to be torn down. And there have been two groups that have come back. And how much work have they done? The city wall of fortification hasn't even been rebuilt yet. And we have sat here and God's people have allowed the city of David to lie in ruins and we are a reproach to the name of God. Wow. Mm. Now, that's honesty, isn't it? That's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, he just got right in their face with the truth and said, this is how big this thing is that we are facing. And then he said, what influencers and leaders do, now let's rise up and let's do something about it. Verse 17, the people said, yes, Nehemiah, let's rise and build. Verse 18, and it says, so they put their hands to the good work. Mm. Now, you, you think about this. Nehemiah has just come to Jerusalem 
from being born in Persia. He'd never seen Jerusalem. He knew the conditions, but he had never really seen it. But there had been people that were living in Jerusalem for decades. The Babylonians had destroyed the city in 587 BC, but along the way, many of the Jews had become, had returned to the city and the, they just did virtually nothing. Zerubbabel brought a, a group that did some work and Ezra came and restored the reading of the law. But when Nehemiah comes, it, the city is still in shambles and all the nations around them. Now think about this, folks. All the unbelieving nations around them, every time they looked at the city of Jerusalem and the, the condition that the people had allowed the city to be in, they laughed at their God. That's what Nehemiah means. We're a reproach to the name of God. Here we are, we, we say that we've, we worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God of the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, and we've let the city of David lie in ruins. Boy, this is a challenge. This guy flat got in their face and called them to the task. Now, listen. Wherever you are and whatever level of leadership or influencing you need to do, truth is the best thing you have at your disposal. That's right. Don't varnish it. Don't whitewash it. Don't smooth the edges of it. Just tell it like it is. And here's the problem for most of us. We are a whole lot more interested in what people think about us than what the truth really is. Mm. And as long as you are more interested in what people think about you than what the truth actually is, you will never become a truth teller. You will always round the edges. You will always round the numbers. You will always hedge the problem. You know, someone said that the problem in churches is that we ask too much of people. I've heard that my whole life. I don't believe that. I think the problem is we ask too little. Yep. The challenges that we give today are so small. Oh yeah, we get people busy, but we get them busy doing little menial tasks that are really not worth giving your life for, that are really not doing. And people say, you know what? They've got me at that church house three or four times a week. And what they're really saying is not about that, but that what I'm doing really doesn't make a difference. It's not big enough to give myself to. And so we go, you know, boy, the church is asking people to do too much. No, the church is not asking us to do enough. Look what Jesus said. Think about this. Jesus had those 12 nitwits that he gathered around himself. They really were. Like all of us, he ch chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, doesn't he? And, and he spent three years with them, and then he said, now win the world. Wow, that's a pretty big challenge, isn't yeah, it? No pressure. No pressure at all. You're going to do greater things than I will. Yeah, you're going to do greater things than I, I Wow, Jesus didn't round the edges. Jesus didn't hedge the bets. Jesus didn't back off of that thing. He said, look, I spent three years with you, and I'm entrusting it to you. I'm going to the right hand of the Father. Now, you go out there and win the world. You see, the problem is not that we ask too much of people. We ask too little. We don't challenge ourselves in the areas that really matter. Anemic challenges bring anemic responses. That's good. 
world-changing challenges cause world-changing people to rise up and do big things. You know, it's really funny how history just kind of just works out for us sometimes on the week that we have to teach on a particular subject. We've gotten to see this in the Ukraine the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Now think about this dude that's the president of the Ukraine. He's a comedian. Seriously. He was a Ukrainian television personality before he ran for the presidency. I mean, this dude, he was like Nehemiah. He was kind of nobody other than he's just kind of a goof off. I would assume that's kind of what most people thought about him. He's just a comedian. He's a TV personality. He's just a goof off. And his nation has been invaded by 200,000 Russian troops. And what does he do? <laughs> he calls the people to fight for their land. Now, how you, whether you agree with that, whether you, I, this is not about politics. I'm talking about an individual who steps up to the plate. He called the people of Ukraine to defend their land, to defend their nation against this invader, and then he stays there with them. Do you remember the guy in Afghanistan? How long did it take him to get out of Dodge? I mean, he packed his suitcases full of Afghanistan's money and he headed off to a safe place. This guy's incredible. I mean, God, you know, anybody can be a leader. If a stand-up comedian, TV personality can be a world leader that now people, listen, are comparing him to Winston Churchill. Yep. And I don't know that he's qualified to be compared to Winston yet. But man, I'm telling you what, he's, he's doing something Winstonian, isn't he? You remember the words of Winston Churchill when before we came into World War II, when they were the only, that island nation was the only nation that was standing against Hitler's fascism and taking over the entire world before we even got into the thing. This is what he said to the British people. He said, I have nothing to offer you but blood. He's not rounding the edges, folks. Toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of terror. Victory however long and however hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Mm. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. And this is while Hitler's dropping bombs on London. And whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. That's a leader. Now that was Winston Churchill. In Ukraine, we have a former comedian TV personality who's doing the same thing. You know what that tells me? That anybody can be a leader. That's right. Anybody who's willing to stand, get involved, tell the truth, not varnish it, can be an influencer. Mm. You know what I'm doing right now in my life? I'm, as you know, I've pretty well transitioned out of the local church ministry other than just backing Derek up after the Nehemiah series is over. You're going to see him up here by himself, and I'm going to fill in for every couple of weeks. But other than that, you know what I'm doing? I'm going around the country calling pastors of churches to repentance. Repentance. I'm not going to get invited to too many pastors' conferences. <laughs> but you know who I'm calling out to? I'm calling the people, the sheep. 
Every week, every week, almost every day, I get calls from women since Fearless Series for, for, for Women was released. I get calls from women literally all over the nation. If I don't get four or five of them a week, it's been a slow week. Begging and pleading, how can I get this in my church? And you know what I tell them? Your pastor needs to repent, but you're not the person to tell him. So I'm calling him to repentance. Everywhere I go, I'm calling pastors to repentance, but I'm calling women to a respectful revolution. And I'm saying to them, I don't have a voice in your pastor's life, but you do. You go to your pastor, you get four or five women, you pour your heart out, don't go with a torch like you're gonna burn the church down, and you call that pastor, say, Pastor, we must do this work because one in three minimum of the women in our church are survivors of sexual abuse. We will not take no for an answer. And you know what? Women are doing that. I was invited to Pennsylvania last week because a woman went to her pastor that way with other women and said, we must do this work and here's a tool. Are you getting this, folks? Wherever you, when, when, are, when are people gonna just stand up and say, quit worrying about what people think about you and start worrying about what's right? Yep. Start being concerned with what the truth is rather than what your image is gonna be if you do so-and-so, if you say so-and-so. By the way, Ross, I talked with Roland Slade this week and we're on the same team now. Mm. And God is opening some of these doors. And I told Roland, he's a pastor in California. He's also the chairman of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a black man, so he knows what it's like to be marginalized. And Roland is standing up for women. And I said, pastor, I am on a mission to call pastors to repentance. And he said, God bless you because there's a whole lot of pride in our denomination that needs to be broken. Are you with me? This is Nehemiah. You don't have to be the president of the United States. You don't have to be the president of a country. You can be a slave in Persia and get a passion and call people to do what's right. Last. Last but not least, he confronted and exposed the opposition. I didn't even get to my notes. <laughs> That's all right. He confronted and exposed the opposition. We talked about this recently in Jeremiah, that whenever God calls you to do something, you can expect opposition. And there's a reason for that. Whenever you step up, whenever you begin doing what God is requiring you to do, it requires change within you. And that change puts pressure on those around you to do the same thing. And not everybody is ready for that. Not everybody is ready to do what you are doing. And so they begin to oppose you. They resist what you are doing. They mock you for how you've changed. They call into question what you are doing. And over and over and over again, the scripture says, resist that. We see Nehemiah doing that here as well. Verse 19, it says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I mean, we've been saying these guys are going to show up for a few weeks now, heckle and jekyll. Well, here they are. They're stirring the pot. The two magpies. Yeah, the two magpies. He's, he's done the work himself. He's personally involved himself. He's one of the people. He doesn't hold the truth back. He, he tells them the state of things. He challenges them with the truth. And after all of that, these Beavis and Butthead show up <laughs> You're not going to hear that at the First Baptist Church. And they say, you can't do this. <laughs> Who gave you the authority to be here? Does the king even know about this? They begin ridiculing him. And I love the response. There's, there's some great applications here. We're going to end with two applications. I love his response. The first one is this in verse 20. 
He says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. That's right. Here's the first application. This is so important. Please get this. Don't defend yourself for being obedient. Don't defend yourself for... Notice that Nehemiah does not defend anything he's done at all. He doesn't talk about how, how God has put this desire in him to rebuild the wall. He doesn't talk about what he's done in the meantime. He doesn't talk about the, the letter that the, the Persian king gave him. He doesn't talk about the resources that the Persian ga- king gave him. He doesn't talk about any of the things that have happened. All he says is, God is doing this and he's going to succeed. That's all. You do not have to defend mm. obedience to God. If it is clear in scripture, if it is clear that God has said this is how it is done, you don't got to apologize for that. You don't have to defend yourself for that. You simply say, this is what God has said, and I will be obedient to it. Amen. But look at the next part of verse 20. He says, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. (laughs) Here's the second thing he does. He exposes the opposition. He calls it what it is. Now, you got to get some history here to understand the significance of what he's saying. Tobiah and Sanballat are not Israelites. They have no God-given right or authority to do anything in Jerusalem at all. They didn't care to see Jerusalem rebuilt. In fact, historically, they are people who are opposed to the Israelites. It says that Sanballat is is referred to as the Horonite. That is, most scholars believe a a province out of Moab. Uh, Tobiah is called the Ammonite. Historically, Moab and Ammon are hostile to Israel. If you go all the way back to the Exodus, when Israel is coming out of Egypt, they are coming out, they, right when they come out of Egypt, they are opposed by two people groups, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And the result of this opposition is so detrimental that God says in, in, in Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever <laughs> enter the assembly of the Lord. They're done. They opposed Israel, they opposed me. They're done. So when, so when Nehemiah says, you have no portion or right or claim, he's referencing history here. Yeah. And in fact, we're going to get to this eventually in Nehemiah 13.1. It says that they get together, Ezra is there, they open the word of God, they begin reading the law, and what do they read? It says, on that day when they read from the book of Moses, in the hearing of the people, and in it, it was found <laughs> that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Sam Ballot and Tobiah weren't, weren't invited. No. And you know that people around there were going, hey, wasn't Sanballat and Tobiah, Ammonites and Moabites? Yeah, they were. That's right. Yeah. Wow. No wonder they were such such crude individuals. And that's why Nehemiah had such courage to stand up to them. Yeah. 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 It's not just that Sanballat and Tobiah were hostile to God's people. It's that they come from a people who are hostile to God's people. And it's that God was hostile towards them as well as a result. And so Nehemiah just calls it what it is. Hmm. You have no right being here. Let me just tell you as as simply and and as um, clearly as I can. When a non-believer calls into question godliness in your life, you tell them you have no right or claim to make that statement. You don't understand. You are hostile towards Hmm. God. Now you do it lovingly. You do it gently with a hope that they may repent and one day come to faith as well. But when a person who has rejected Jesus and has rejected what God has done says to you you're wrong or you're stupid for doing whatever it is that God has called you to do, 
They have no right or claim or authority. Don't be intimidated by that. Yeah. And you call it what it is. You call it what it is. And you don't, and you don't apologize for obedience. Hmm. This is what being an influencer looks like. It's, it, it's really not hard, actually. But what it requires is, like James said, letting go of what other people think of you. That's just the, the bottom line. If you are trying to protect an image, if you're trying to protect some, and, and man, look, I know, we do this in Christendom, you know, especially with our, our non-believing friends or, or, or more, you know, uh, liberal, not in the political sense, but just liberal people and the way that they live. You know, I don't want to offend them, you know, because I'm trying to build a bridge. You're not trying to build a bridge. Be honest with yourself. You're trying to be accepted. It sounds nice, but you're <laughs> trying to be accepted. And at some point, you have to decide, is that bridge more important than the truth of God? Is it more important? Is my reputation with these people who at the end of the day think I am stupid for my belief in Jesus, is that more important than, than the truth? If it is, there's a real problem. If it's not, be an influencer. You can be a big pig too. But it's going to require a little bit of truth and a little bit of challenge and letting go of, of what you Amen. think you are in their eyes. Pray with me. Father, thank you for uh, the example of Nehemiah, the hard example of Nehemiah. The hard example of what it looks like to stand with conviction over what you have said. I recognize, Lord, that, that it's intimidating and, and that it, it's scary. And, and I pray, God, for a, a great amount of wisdom and a great amount of gentleness in the way that we practice this. We don't want to be crude for the sake of being crude. We want to be truthful for the sake of being truthful. And sometimes, Lord, I recognize that, that truth looks mean, it looks ugly, and so I pray, God, that you would temper us with your spirit to speak truth and love, but to speak it confidently and clearly. Mm-hmm. To be people of influence who get involved personally, who identify with the people that you've called us together to. Mm-hmm. To be people of truth, to be people who are willing to run headfirst into the challenge before us and to expose opposition unapologetically along the way. How we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go make a difference.